Another day, another podcast, Luke. We are getting through them at the moment, aren't we? Yeah, mate. It's a good time. Um, I think everyone uh, that we seem to be speaking with, I just think there's a, you know, there's a real outer of excitement at the moment, which is really good, and we're finding... Um, you know, having these leaders like we've had recently and today's guest is no exception, um, it's actually nice to be chatting to people who are talking with positivity and looking forward. You know, whereas if you look historically, a lot of our podcasts were heavily dominated by horror stories of what was happening through COVID. So um, today's guest, I think, is is obviously going to be able to reflect on that. But also, you know, um, after hearing the vision for the company at Ahis a couple of weeks ago, I think we're in for a bit of an exciting story about what they've got planned for the future. And our guest is... Uh, we're today, Simon McGrath. So uh, Simon is the Chief Executive Officer at a core um, in the Pacific region. So, um, you know, recent change to his role from, I think, being primarily Australian-focused. But um, obviously, when you consider a core's portfolio of businesses, business uh, or brands and their network of properties, you know, domestically, the number of hotels they have is significant. But when you put that into a Pacific region, the numbers are quite staggering. So... Um, Simon as an individual is, uh, you know, widely recognised as a very inspirational leader. Um, you know, we've, we've done work with the core in the past and as with Frank, for example, I've, I've not had anyone um, say anything but glowing um, things about Simon and his leadership within the organisation and, and in particular over the last 12 months, the way that it's been handled, even in the face of, you know, significant adversity for the accommodation sector, that business has done quite well, I think, most would say. Yeah, I think it's uh, interesting in terms of these uh, guests, I think partly because people have had the um, adjustment of the pandemic, the rethinking and the reimagining, so I think there is a bit of excitement about what the future yeah. holds and, and I think it came up in the podcast with Frank it's the role of what uh, category leaders, they kind of, I think, have a almost larger duty or larger role in, uh, you know, re-establishing, I guess, is me trying to persuade people a little bit sometimes, but but definitely, like, um, I know that Simon thinks in that way, mm. and uh, I'm really excited to uh, chat to him as uh, uh, our next guest. Nice. Let's do it. All right. Well, I guess we're on the air. Welcome, Simon McGrath. Pleasure to have you on the Back of House podcast. Thanks, Michael. Now we uh, have been chasing you around the country, and and in a sign of the times, we've I think both of us could be in Sydney. I can't quite tell where you are, but I, I'm, I'm in Sydney. I'm in uh, Pitt Street, Sydney. Oh, there we go. Well, uh, Luke, my co-host, is sitting up in sunny Noosa, where he tells me it's forty degrees. That <laughs> it's one, pretty close. Um. So, like, we'll, we'll get stuck in. Uh, thanks for giving up your time. It's a busy time for all of us, and uh, and for a man in your role, uh, you're, it's by the minute. So, uh, welcome. Um, for our listeners that aren't entrenched in the accommodation sector, can you give us an understanding of the scope of your role uh, and sort of talk about the number of properties, brands, and geographical dis- distribution that you oversee? Sure, sure. Look, happy to, and happy to share that. We've we've. Uh, I've- lead a, a core in the Pacific region, which covers Australia, New Zealand, French Polynesia and Fiji. And within that group, we've got 400 hotels. Uh, Pre-COVID, that was 21,000 employees. Um, and then um, we've got about 38 different brands, um, ranging from luxury, lifestyle, mid-market and economy. Um, and the final part of that ecosystem is naturally the customer, which is, is so very important to us. And we've got Roughly one in four million uh, Australians is part of our loyalty club, and uh, 
ACOR Live Limitless is how we describe that, and and that's roughly one in eight, one in seven adult Australians as part of our loyalty channel. So very dear to our heart and guest-obsessed. Uh, it's a large role, I think. We can all agree that. But uh, And maybe there's a two-parter here, but what would an average week look like for you pre-pandemic? And yeah. now what does it look like at the moment? Yeah, look, it's um, pre-pandemic, an average week would have been a, a day, in, probably a day in Sydney, uh, two days on the Gold Coast because we've got quite a sizable business in the Mantra acquisition on the Gold Coast. And then I'd uh, probably finish the week with a one more day in Sydney and there might be one day somewhere else. So three to four days of travelling around Australia and New Zealand um, and being out in hotels because that's a part, I mean, part of what we, we, we want to do is be where the teams are. We've got good local teams and we think that the presence closest to the hotel is far better than in a corporate entity. Um, and so we're out and about. And, and that would be a mixture of meeting with employees, meeting with investors, um, conducting marketing, um, looking at um, – I like being outside the business a bit. I like to learn from others. So I try and make sure we're with our partners or learning from people like yourself, Michael, and and understanding future strategy on on, on different regions in which we work. So um, reasonably busy in terms of travel um, pre-pandemic. Post-pandemic, we're now returning to travel, but um, I seem to not have my travel – I used to have my travel regime meticulous. I had two bags packed. <laughs> they were exactly the same. Toiletries, sports gear was all the same. Now I go to travel and I've got not, don't have the right adap- you know power adapters. I've left half my toiletries at home and I forgot one sand shoe. So <laughs> I'm just getting and I'm exhausted. So I, I got a bit nervous and worried that I've lost my lost my game and um, and I'm madly trying to pick it up. So I just drove to go even harder. So I'm, I'm back out doing the same sort of travel now. Um, and uh, getting back to the teams, which is so desperately needed. The, uh, it obviously goes without saying the, I guess, the last 14 months. Well, let's go back to the beginning, maybe back to March. Um, obviously, the industry was fairly well um, decimated, for lack of a better word, for a period. Um, what's the last 14 months been like for you, I guess, as a leader in any industry that is, has been so heavily hit? Yeah, I, I, look, I think... Um, in April last year was probably our toughest period of time. We knew that we had a pandemic on our hands and we didn't know where that would end. Um, I knew that we had strong leadership. I mean, we've dealt with crisis before and I'm very confident in the, in the leadership and the culture. And someone said to me, you know, how do you build a culture through pandemic? And I've often said, well, if you if you're trying to build a culture during the middle of a pandemic, it's way too late. So for two, three, four, five years prior, we had a beautiful culture of, of a great team, a great deal of loyalty, and people that you could rely on, that you could turn to and just look at, and you knew that they had your back and you had the, yours. So first of all, we entered into it under that circumstance, and that's been tested before and it's always stood up. So I was confident. Um, I, I care, we worried about the team. You know, we went from 21,000 employees down to 6,000 employees. Thankfully, we're back to about 13,500 employees. But I was desperately, so we, we spent, worried about the team. And so we set up a couple of things. Firstly, we, we championed government on uh, JobKeeper. Uh, and we were, we were pretty aggressive on that. We also, at the same time, set up um, a fund for our employees where we spent $4 million. Uh, instead of returning it to shareholders, we returned it to our employees, which was one, three, and $5,000 grants for all our employees, anyone that was impacted 
by or their families were impacted by COVID and we've been so proud to be able to be there every Tuesday and Thursday night. I sat there pleasingly and proudly um, distributing those funds, but sadly listening to the stories of all our employees. But that that meant it was real. You know, we would we would we knew every story and we wanted to wrap our arms around all our team members and we did so. Um, and then it started to become you know, apparent that you know, sort of August, that yeah, you know, maybe we've we've got an economy that's stronger than elsewhere. We've got a health system that's stronger than elsewhere. And probably August is when we started to get a little bit more confidence. Um, we also had our investors, you know, that you know these people that the number of our major investors that invest in the hotels and so on, you know, they carry a hell of a lot of responsibility uh, for Australian tourism and then they've done a great job and they improve hotels and they bring new bands, brands to the market, they grow the industry and we really wanted to make sure they were, they were looked after. So, again, JobKeeper, Stimulus and other things helped them. So it was largely around, you know, April to August staying strong, being very clear. We went to, you know, daily briefing sessions, um, and, and as I said, communicating. We had to communicate to people. We had to show a level of leadership where we could provide some comfort in what was a crazy time. Um, and then April, August onwards, we started to get a bit more confidence that we were coming out. Um, and there were a number of false starts, and there still continues to be, but we're far stronger than anywhere else in the world and such a proud region. Mm. The, um, if we can look at that culture piece for a second, the Accor is a business, um, I think, from my perspective, has been one that is very clearly um, pushed quite hard to drive the culture within their business yeah. through. Um, I mean, I've been exposed to things like Hartist and Peopleology, for yeah. example. Where does that yeah. come from? What, what has driven that? And it could just be, you know, the basics of wanting to develop a strong culture. But um, what sort of underpinned that within the business um, pre-pandemic? Oh, I think culture comes from your interest in it you know you, you can't fake culture mm. um you can't read it from a book and if you try and copy you'll be desperately unhappy so uh, we develop our own culture i've got a, we've got a team of leaders that um you know long tenure in the business have all done different roles they're all fairly young but they've all done many many different roles i think if you've got stability and leadership and you have a real sense of purpose in the community um it feels better and we're in, we're in the world of hospitality we know our business is driven by people and we've never been one to churn those. We've been very lucky that we've grown. I mean, over 50, you know, we've been in Australia 30 years, Australia and New Zealand 30 years, and we've brought new brands, we've brought new hotels, we've started with one hotel, we're now at 400 hotels. Um, and that's brought a level of pride and excitement. But I think as you get bigger, um, you become more obsessed about culture because, I mean, I hate being big. I don't like it at all. I like being, I like having scale. I like being able to deliver a great performance, but I obsess about the one hotel, 50-room hotel in Mudgee or the one employee in Albury or, you know, knowing people's names and not numbers. And we've always been a company that, that has known people's names and don't treat them as numbers. So fear probably drives culture, to be honest, <laughs> in a way. You know, I'm frightened of not having it um, and I'm so proud. And we rely on it. We, it. It gives us strength and it gives us growth. But we, underneath that, is a high level of performance culture around it. You know, it's for what? You know, it's very. I always say to our team, it's very hard to help people when you're poor. And you know, the same. You know, it's okay to be strong and it's okay to have scale. But so long as you give back to community and you give back to your employees, it seems to have real purpose. 
Um, can I jump in? And we were at a heist recently, uh, Simon, all together, and and we one of the standout comments. And there's a bit of a theme about uh, the way that the sector has treated, well, has engaged with employees or treated people generally. And I guess it's in the context, I think, a bit of a navel gazing in terms of yeah. where we are at the moment, which is just with with borders closed, and you know, we know all the stories. You know, no yeah. students, all these things. Like, well, in, in terms of, um, and and I think, um, yeah. That there was um, your own CEO um, observed that the sector as a whole. My takeaway was even though a call may have done well and others have done well, the sector as a whole needs to work out how to treat people. Um, yeah. And I, I wonder if you can sort of give us your views on that. And, and maybe if I can ask a question, which was in my mind at the time, it was when I look at the sector and I think, well, hotels, hospitality, tourism, accommodation, hospitality, it really just one part of one big sector mm-hmm. and to me it, it sort of because the same thing happens when you start talking to restaurateurs and bar owners everyone's tr- scrambling for staff at the moment but um how do you feel like the sector can look at that as as a go forward or take away from the pandemic can it do a better job of i guess communicating the value of hospitality and ho- and good hospitality and careers I think it, can. it needs to it starts with as you say it starts with the respect you know and, and it's um I think there's been a churn in the in the industry. Um, we we strive not to have that churn. We long long tenure, uh, but you know you have to do a lot of work. I mean, you know, your most valuable asset is your employees, and you know, fifty uh, percent of your cost is employees. Why would you diminish the value of that? So, but you know, you need to build good. I mean, you want to show people you care. You train them. You want to show people care. You give them pathways. You want to show people you care. You have a culture that whereby you listen to them um, and genuinely listen. And finally, if you want to show people you care, you have a, an expectation around customer satisfaction that you're passionate about. And too many people come into employment in hospitality and, and they don't get that. Um, they get disillusioned and they, they end up just working for $22 an hour or whatever, you know, those sort of amount they're on. Um, and as I said, disillusioned. So um, I think it's going to be very good for the industry. I think we're going to have... Uh, really have to understand and respect our, our front line. They're wonderful. They're strong. We're in a position where we're not finding as many shortages as would otherwise be seen. Um, but you know, it's a decade of of tools and 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 pillars that we can rely on. Yep. Um, and you got to do it. You got to do it. <laughs> I'm just trying to make conversation here. I ain't trying to make no conversation. This is business. I'm coming down there for my $500 refund. Y'all know what I'm saying? And I'm coming down there. I'm going to delay. I'm going to do it today. You've got a fairly wide geographic, um, I guess, perspective. Yep. Is it consistent across all of the markets that you're operating in or are there any areas or, or, or countries, or cities even, that are um, excluded from the talent shortage, as you said? Oh, look, I think, um, you know, the CBDs of Sydney and Melbourne haven't fully opened up yet, so they're operating at lower occupancy levels, so there's probably a little bit less pressure there. Um, the key leisure destinations are booming. Um, but, you know, again, we've got a, you know, it was only six months ago we shooed everyone out of the industry because it was in crisis, not for anyone's fault, but it was a global crisis. So, you know, this whole issue about... Um, you know, the government's got to do something to help us get people back or, you know, we've got to need support and so on. I mean, the best thing the industry can do is is show that it's a strong industry and prior to going into COVID, it was a tier one sector. Mm. 
it was well well recognised globally within investment circles as the T1 sector and was something that was growing faster than most GDP economies in most nations around the world. We need to now tell that story again. We need to show that the, the areas of North Queensland, Sunshine Coast, Gold Coast, all leisure destinations in Australia are strong and they, you can rely on them. Um, and then we need to welcome people back and, we'll, and tell that story. So we've been out to press recently and we've been communicating that and we've got to show to people and their families that it is a safe industry. And I, I think you, you're seeing that in many ways. The V-shaped recovery that was expected to be far greater and deeper is not is, is very strong. It's a very quick recovery and now the city's moving. So, you know, I think in time um, the confidence in the tourism sector will, will quickly come back. And we're already in seeing that from the capital markets and investment markets already. They have never fallen away. They want to buy assets in Australia and New Zealand, and I think that gives confidence to the future. Well, one thing would be good for me in my uh, new role, as you know, is the 24-Hour Economy Commissioner. Uh, and uh, like, a, there's a, a fair degree of focus for me specifically on Sydney CBD. Yeah. Uh, and and whereas I, I guess just listening to you speak, you've got a, a broader perspective by virtue of your role. Like if, if we just talk about the CBDs of um, Sydney and Melbourne, I think for me and Luke, these these markets are, are kind of ones that we focus a bit of time. Now listeners um, have businesses that have a high degree of exposure to those markets. Is there, um, what's your takes? Can you deep, um, deep dive a bit more into the CBD yeah, sure. dynamic specifically and business travel, conferencing, those types of issues? Yeah, I think Australia will, CBD locations um, will benefit in many ways from COVID. And what do I mean there? Firstly, 40% of all stock, all hotel stock is in leisure destinations. 60% is in CBD. And we're at pains to share with that, share that story to state governments and federal governments. And probably 60 to 5 to 70% of employment is in CBD. So, um, so what is, why is it going to come out of COVID better long term? I think fundamentally, the city locations um, relied heavily on corporate and uh, business to fill their cities and were fairly lazy or um, lacked the level of animation that world cities and global cities should have. What we're going to have with the absence or the slow return of uh, or staged return of the corporate business and corporate market, which is fine, all state governments now know they need to animate the cities. What does that mean? They need to be, these cities need to be open. They need to have entertainment. They need to have culture. They need to have the arts in them. They need to have space. They're much safer cities when they're open late and there's lights on and there's theatre going and so on. And two, you know, the, the hopefully we're going to get past and out of COVID this whole concept of 10 o'clock on a Monday to Thursday night being quiet in a city. And if it isn't quiet, it's unsafe. Well, let's get past that. You know, you look at the level of new stock in Brisbane, in Adelaide, in Perth, you know, no longer are we a two-city country. We've got Sydney and Melbourne look great, but, gee, Brisbane looks hot, Adelaide looks great, Perth looks great. There's new precincts, Elizabeth Keys in Perth and the Howard Smith Wharves in Brisbane and so on. So I think fundamentally us cities and state governments are going to realise they need to invest in people and assets, and, and your appointment was was just outstanding, Michael, and it, it has given the industry so much confidence already. But let's get these economies going in the cities and, and, and let's make sure that the residents of the city enjoy coming into the city. They're the first people we need to engage. They're the people that will be with us day in, day out. Let's make sure if your residents of a, of a, of a, of a city love the, the CBD, so do your visitors. 
We've seen that in New York. We've seen that in other destinations around the globe. So I th- I mean, we're talking to all state governments. They're all focused on it. That's going to be a good thing. We'd, let's hope we might use the next 12 months um, to bring these the, the arts, the theatre, the culture, uh, entertainment, music back into the cities for residents first and then open up. You, you uh, obviously um, uh, cover a pretty diverse range of brands, each with different sort of key market, market segments. Can you give a bit of insight as to your longer-term strategy around where you see growth across those different segments or, or brand types? Sure, and, and has, sure, and sure. I guess, clarify, has, has if any change has been, um, uh, has been applied to that strategy as a result of the experience over the last 14 months? Sure. Okay. Um, well, firstly, the, the proliferation of brands and growth of brands has grown with the traveller, right? So 15 years ago, travel, I think, in... Most countries, but certainly our country, was for the wealthy or corporate or conferencing. You know, now with the with the high propensity of low cost carriers over the last fifteen years, um, social media, the expectation for travel is a right. You know, fifteen years ago, you know, twenty year old or today, a twenty year old would could travel interstate three times a year in normal circumstances. Once to see a concert, once to go to a sporting event, perhaps to go to a party or family event. Um, that wasn't the case 15, 20 years ago. So new brands are, are following a new traveller. Um, and so more tra- people are travelling globally. As I mentioned before, the growth of tur- tourism and travel has, has excelled. So what do we need to give them? We need to give them a broad spectrum of curated brands. Uh, so we go from sorry, obviously luxury to lifestyle uh, to mid-market to economy. And the, you don't have different travellers for different brands. They use them equally one traveler might use three different brands they might travel to a city on corporate and a leisure on lifestyle and then they might go to a sporting event on they might use one of our great economy brands and mid-market brands so so that was pre and that's where that bubbled up to our post um i think the bolters are going to be well it's hard to differentiate anyway but i think australia needs more luxury there's no doubt about that that great 10 million visits have traveled offshore continually each year uh, are now at home and they want really great product and, and luxury uh, sits well. Uh, they also want experiences in lifestyle. We brought a Mondrian, Moven, Pick, 25-hour, Mama Shelter. Those brands are coming um, and, and so they should. But equally, the more established brands, I mean, lifestyle I'll, I'll present to you is only 10% of the market globally. You've still got those great established brands and foundation brands that many people use and continue to use. So um, is the question was, you know, has anything changed post-COVID? Not really. Not really. I'm surprised um, at two things. One, the level of investment in Australia and New Zealand is as active as it never faded through COVID and actually it's, it's got faster because we're a safe health system and we're a strong economy. So there's a lot of places around the world that's been crossed off the investment market, not, not this region. But overseas money is coming in here at a furious mm-hmm. pace. Secondly, as a result of that, you've got brands coming in. You know, most most companies would would understand that it's a buoyant economy, and again, not, not as I said, capturing that we're a net exporter of travel. Yes, we used to have nine million inbound visits a year, but we had ten million outbound, and that's why you're seeing such strength in that V-shaped recovery come. So, in actual fact, you could argue I'm starting to think we're probably pre-COVID to post-COVID. Post-COVID, we're going faster with brands. Yeah, right. It's really interesting. And I'm just going back to the observations you're making about the sort of 12-month and maybe it's as an example of what, what can be done as we re-engage residents with the city. Uh, and if I talk specifically about Sydney market, uh, it, 
and not not with any best attempts, but you'd you'd have a bit of a view on Sydney's desirability for major international events, and you know, in comparison to say uh, Melbourne, which I think's sort of been regarded as having done a great job over a long period in attracting major events. With those elements in mind, so uh, I guess a, a city that's re-embraced by its residents and then uh, a, a investment market that is looking at the region saying it is a good region to invest in, do you think that's going to have a knock-on effect for the desirability for major events being, and I'm talking about winning bids? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think... Um if you look currently at the at film production as an example, we're, we're quoting on four times the amount of film production business coming to Australia than we were pre-COVID. Why? Because safe place to be. If you're going to be here for somewhere for six months, health system's good, economy's good, there's great talent here. And so we're seeing film production come to the Gold Coast and Melbourne and other places. We're seeing in the entertainment industry, you know, you talk to the likes of Sony and others, you know, they're seeing their artists wanting to come and live out here, produce here and so on because, again, it's a good economy, a safe environment. Um, I think you'll uh, you certainly see events. You know, they'll be not you – know, we've shown an ability to do, um, you know, the NRL, the AFL, the tennis, you know, because there is uncertainty still. There is uncertainty still and possibly for the next, you know, year or two years on, on a further lockdown or global crisis. So – People are going to, the investors in events um, are going to invest where they can keep them open and um, and we're seeing evidence of that already. Um, just to follow up, the, um, and the vaccination um, trajectory, like is there, is there, like in some of the circles people talk uh, that it's been a, you know, a bit of an inhibitor, you know, we were ahead and then we fell behind. Like is it, a, how determinative is it? I think I think it's pretty important. I think we've. Um, it, 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 I'm not necessarily the government has got it wrong. I think we all, as a community, have got it wrong. You know, we need to get vaccinated. I hear so many people. We had a debate at our dinner table last night with our kids who are in their twenties, saying, "You know, I'll get vaccinated when I go overseas." I said, "That's not the point. We will not trade with another company, country, or open a border until we've got fully vaccinated." And uh, you know. Uh, uh, population and they have a vaccinated population so yep. you won't it is pre it's preemptive of opening borders not post and we need to show to the world that not only can we manage our health but we also are vaccinated and therefore that will be open other borders and if we don't do that we'll continue to stay in a sort of nanny state lockdown so it's really important i think what's going to happen is probably the government's it's hard for that message to get out now there are a lot of people that aren't necessarily interested in travelling overseas. Um, and so we need to probably – I think the only solution will be incentives. All right. Well, with the, if I could ask a quick one before we move on yep. to the final question, so I would guess based on your time availability, when the borders open, we talk about borders opening, we talk about investment into the uh, local, uh, I guess, market. Um, yep. When – what are you predicting will happen when the borders are fully open from a uh, a travel return perspective domestically in Australia specifically? Are you thinking it's kind of boom time, or are you are you sort of cautious in your estimation? Are you talking about the international borders Correct. or the in, domestic international borders? borders? So when international borders are open, what will happen to domestic travel? I think there'll be, I think there'll be a lot of people coming to Australia. Because, again, you, you'll open borders, but you'll open to safe countries. 
So there is going to be a number of lag effects on economies and countries that people just don't trust the data. People don't trust the system. People don't want any uncertainty. So I think we're going to get a flood of international. I also have a relatively positive view on outbound travel, which is our domestic market, which is so strong. But I think we've created habits. It had, had COVID lasted three months and then international borders opened, I think we would have gone madly to that ostentatious and pr- approach to travelling overseas. And, you know, we're a bit full as a gulg on all travelling overseas. I think the fact that COVID effectively is two years at least, the fact that we've now created habits. I mean, I've got friends of mine that have been back to Yamba twice or they've been to Broome twice or they've gone to the Territory once and then back to – I think we've created habits and I think we've learnt that it's good for our kids maybe to travel more domestically than it is just everyone get this God-given right to travel overseas. And so I think we've got a far greater respect for Australia and the domestic nature and our beautiful landscape and skies and so on. And so I think we'll hold a bit more of the domestic than we would have other, otherwise done and we'll get this in, overweight level of um, international business coming in. Great. Um, Simon, we've got a few, um, uh, I'll describe them as penultimate questions before the penultimate questions. A, a quick one. Um, I, for the longest time, I've been coming to AHIS. You've been such a fixture and uh, you've been at a core and you're all for eight. Like, if you weren't doing this job, what else would you be doing? I wasn't doing this job. What else would I be doing? Um, well, it's probably something around hospitality. I wouldn't mind running a pub, you know. <laughs> uh, I'd love to run a pub. Uh, or be a concierge on the front door of a five-star hotel. I love that. That's the hottest job in the world. Um, so they're, they're the two jobs I'll be doing. Um, and uh, um, Luke, do you want to ask the other one we were talking about? Uh, yeah, just 2019, you were recognised as a member uh, of the Order of Australia. I mean, obviously yeah. a huge honour. What did that mean to you personally to to achieve something like that? Well, it meant a lot. You know, I... Um, you want to have a level of humility and keep your feet on the ground. So on one half, half of your brain's going, don't believe your own press. Um, and so you, you fight with that. But look, I, my dad is 86-year-old, who I, is the most wonderful bloke in the world, and he's he was um, surprised. I think he's been surprised every day he wakes up and thinks about what I do. It's the biggest look on his face is one of surprise. But um, and my family, you know, those that have sacrificed a lot when I am away and I'm working, you know, for them to be proud and probably most importantly for my children, just they're all beautiful kids and they're all starting their careers and, and you know, you want them to have ambition and you want them to achieve and you want them to do good things. So I probably showed them that that's what that, the type of thing you should do. So um, probably it was more related to family and the impact on family than necessarily public gratification the public stuff you've got to be um as i said you've got to keep your foot on the ground and 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 it's it's not about that yeah i can't imagine anyone who's been around you and either worked with you or seen what you've done who would uh disagree that uh, uh it's a uh, highly deserved uh, honor so yeah thank you thank you um, we're going to uh, plow through our final five questions, Simon, right. which are kind of one-liners, if you can, on your reply. Yeah. But um, I think readers, sorry, listeners to this will be fascinated to know uh, 
what you're reading or a favourite book perhaps or a podcast you listen to or anything you listen to? Yeah, so I watched the Netflix, um, the playbook came out in the last few weeks. I didn't realise it was recent, but it's about five coaches and um, Jose Mourinho, Patrick who coached Serena. Uh, the great, the one I loved the most was I think Jill Ellis who was the coach of the US women's football team. Um Doc Rivers, and then another coach there. So that that was really good. It's got their five principles to success, and I couldn't stop listening to that. I like um, – I don't read a lot of um, corporate books. I find they all say the same. And uh, But I did read Bob Igor's Ride of a Lifetime from Disney. That was good. Um, I really, really liked that. Um, and I started reading, which gave my team here the fright of their life um, – uh, the podcast on dictators. I think they had a wry grin and understood where that came from, but it didn't give anyone great comfort. So they're the three things I've sort of been mucking around with at the moment. Oh, that's, I think that's one of the best answers we've ever had to this question. <laughs> uh, get on to the next one, which is on the music, in the music world. Is there a favourite artist? Is your favourite artist or any music you're listening to at the moment? Uh my favourite artist. Oh, look, I tell you, I'll say tell me quite honestly. When I'm on the treadmill and in the morning or at night, and I just want inspiration, I want happiness, and so on. I constantly on YouTube, and I play Australia, uh, America's Got Talent, and Britain's Got Talent. The golden buzzer moments, where this great new talent gets up, sings this incredible song that was unexpected. They put a good story to it, as you know. And then they slam the golden buzzer, which means they go straight through to the finals. And as far as just like in a world of COVID last year, I really made an incredible focus to get myself up, get myself inspired. And I don't like looking at, I don't focus on negative stuff. So most crap and negativity I brush away, but I hang around a lot of positivity. So if ever you want to, and I send it to friends and they think I'm an idiot, but (laughs) I do like that. And they're beautiful songs and stories behind someone coming out and creating them, they're awesome. So that's what I listen to heaps. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> no, well, I've, I've, done the, I've been guilty of doing the same thing. I think it's a oh, fantastic yeah. insight actually into the power of optimism and just seeing like, more about oh, this. Yeah. You can run through brick walls after you see some of that stuff and that's what we need to do. They do They do put it together well, don't they? Oh. Um, now, you're a man who's not averse to a drink, I'm just saying, but uh, is what's your what's your go-to drink? Uh, lots. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'm proud to say my drinking habits are Sunday to Thursday. I don't have a drink, uh, but come Friday, Saturday, probably a little bit too much, and I only ever drink with my wife, really, um, or the kids. I don't drink with my kids. I don't like drinking with no matter how old they are. I don't like drinking with my children. Um, but I, so I drink with Jules and um, Shiraz, uh, no doubt. But I always start. I have to start with a, uh, a beer. I always start with draft beer. I always have one because I just still want to know that I've got that. Aussiness <laughs> about me, and that Aussiness about me. I'm obsessed Aussie. Um, I have one beer, and then I have Shiraz. It's a sign of a day, of a day well spent, isn't it? When you've had right. beer, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, now, this is going to be like asking which of your kids you love the most. But yeah. if you've got a favourite, um, you could. I'm going to say venue, but it could be a, your, your, a favourite hotel of all time. Favourite hotel of all time. They sort of change a bit, and they're obviously around where the family are. Um, and 
I, look, we probably, I mean, recently, it, it sounds corny, but it's one of our hotels at, at Kingscliff, uh, Pepper's Kingscliff, because I had all the kids there, their girlfriends and boyfriends, and um, we just had the nicest time together. Um, but I love, I, I mean, to be honest with you, I love checking into hotels. My yeah. hobby is checking into hotels. I love checking, I could check into eight hotels a day, big ones, old ones, crappy ones, good ones, luxury economy. I just find it so interesting, and you, you know that experience where you open the mini bar and you look at the, <laughs> the cupboard and you, you determine why they do things and where where things are. I love it. So it's probably every hotel, to be honest. I really like them. Oh, well, that's fair enough in your case. All right, a final question: um, Who in the industry are you most inspired by, and why? Uh, who in the industry am I most inspired by? And why? I'm inspired at the moment by our frontline, the quarantine workers. They're just unbelievable. I've, I, I had a, a really deep moment at the um, on our darkest day. You know, it was the fifth of, it was the fourth of, um, it was, the, I think it was the fourth of May. And it was it was our toughest day, and I remember it clearly. And someone sent me through the most beautiful video. I was I was sitting at home. I was sitting in, in a sort of lockdown environment in a hotel on my own in a room. Had project managers two floors below me because we couldn't interact. And they sent me through a video. Oh, I had a plan in front of me to let go thousands of employees. We didn't have JobKeeper at the time. We were lobbying government. It was pitch dark and raining, and this beautiful video came through of our teams who I know intimately in hotels. Hotel quarantine was getting smashed around by just cheap commentary. And our staff were the most amazing. They were putting birthday cakes together. They were telling people stories. They were taking iPads so older people could connect to their family. They were just amazing at what they were doing and they weren't getting any appreciation for it. But they were keeping people's mental health in check because at the end of the day, four days into a two-week quarantine, you're stuffed. You're, you're, at, you're climbing the walls. And these, and they were smiling, they were laughing, and it was to music. It was put to music, so it's probably a little bit of a America's Got Talent type sort of thing. <laughs> it was brilliantly done, and and it, I really, it was really tough. I found it really tough to get through that moment watching them, and it, it it gave me. I wrote that date and time down on my notepad, and then I wrote five years ahead, and I wrote, you know, that we'll get everyone back within the five years. I, we're probably going to get them back within. 12 to 18 months, but I, was, I knew at that stage we were going to fight for everyone. So at the moment, I can't go past our team. Uh, they're just extraordinary, and I'm, I'm so very lucky to be able to work with them. It's a privilege. Awesome. Um, Simon, yeah, you've been very generous with your time. I think, uh, you know, you, you know, these people do look up to you and um, will enjoy listening to this and, and sort of sharing, I think, some of your benefit of your insights, but also some of the inspirational stories that you've been telling us this afternoon. So um, from me, anyway, thanks thanks for giving us your time and um, and wish you the best with the ongoing recovery for a call Thank and you. the water accommodation sector. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Take care and thanks for giving your time. Cheers.